coolness is not an image that can be bought or worn. True cool is an attitude that is projected from a person who is extremely comfortable in their own skin. So writes Susie Cassim, an American author and poet. And if it's true, no one is cooler than John MacArthur. He doesn't care if you think the suits he wears every Sunday are old-fashioned. He's unmoved by criticism of his sermon's content or length. Personal insults have no effect. John MacArthur knows exactly who he is and what he is. But there are other ways to think about cool. Webster's International Dictionary defines the word as mastery of the latest in approved technique and style. But even that definition is in flux, which is why there's a mountain of research on this elusive, ambiguous concept of cool. Books with titles like Hip, The History by John Leland, or The Origin of Cool in Postwar America by Joel Dinnerstein, and Cool Rules, The Anatomy of an Attitude by Dick Pountain and David Robbins all try to answer a basic question. Who gets to decide what is popular, what is desirable, what has aesthetic appeal, the fashion industry, what teenagers idolize? Even pulpits in America are all preoccupied with this concept of cool and its current application. So if you're a pastor, what does cool look like? Should you be concerned about it? Should you care about your style? Should you consider hiring someone to manage your brand? Should you be cool? Get answers on this episode as we look at the who and what of John MacArthur, the style he's had for more than 50 years. And we also examine a different style, a vibe, a group of cool preachers that pack auditoriums and go viral on YouTube using the latest and approved technique and style. My name is Austin Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master's Seminary. And this is the MacArthur Center Podcast, Season 1, The Expositor, The Life and Preaching of John MacArthur. We're going to tell this story like a play in three acts. We're calling Act One, The Glib. A head that once was crowned with You're listening to Elevation Worship, a band that leads the music at Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Your name, your name is victory. 
In 2016, the band released this song titled Resurrecting. Over the past five years, the music video has accumulated more than 42 million views on YouTube. In the music video, the lead singer is wearing a fresh pair of tennis shoes, sneakers. He always leads worship in a nice pair of kicks. In 2019, his footwear caught the attention of a man named Ben Kirby, and it went viral. It was March of 2019 where uh, my wife was out of town on a girl's trip, and I had, to, to make ends meet, I was DJing on the side. In this clip, Kirby is talking to Ethan Renault's YouTube channel. Ben describes how his Instagram account became famous enough to attract the interest of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and even the London Times. And so I had uh, DJed super late the night before uh, here in Dallas and slept through church. And I had never done this before or anything, but I decided that morning I was going to sit on my couch and watch worship videos on YouTube. <laughs> and so I had I had uh, an Elevation song stuck in my head, and so I just Googled that song, and the video came up, and I noticed uh, the leader of the band at the time was wearing some Yeezys that I knew were worth about a thousand bucks, eight hundred to a thousand bucks, and I uh, it stirred something within me that I didn't know was in there, and I uh, made a couple videos about it on my personal Instagram account just saying like hey did y'all know these shoes are 800 bucks this is insane um, and basically spent the rest of the day looking up other videos like that and noticed that all these there was all these guys out there wearing shoes that were just outlandishly uh, valuable and uh, I had a buddy encourage me to start an account doing just that and so I took a few days I thought of the name and then I created the handle this new Instagram account was preachers and sneakers. And I copied over those original videos. And then within four weeks, I had like 100,000 followers. Like there were certain days where I was getting like 20,000 new followers a day. Along with the lead singer of Elevation Worship, the page featured Elevation Church's pastor, Stephen Furtick. In March of 2019, Kirby posted a screenshot of Furtick wearing a pair of Jordans available on the resale market for $965. He also posted screenshots of sneakers on preachers like T.D. Jakes, John Gray, Carl Lentz, and Paula White, who Kirby told the Washington Post is a content goldmine, consistently wearing shoes worth close to $1,000. Because some things, if you open a door and get deliverance to and you're not ready for it, that, that devil come back seven times stronger. So I'm going to equip you with the word. Amen. And we're going to go through this together. Say amen. So what's the point and purpose of the account? Clearly, it's meant to expose the extravagance of some of the most prominent celebrity pastors, and it does that effectively. Please welcome Tim Challies to the podcast. He's the firstborn among evangelical bloggers, and he's talking about the preachers and sneakers phenomenon. It shows them showing off their wealth by flaunting designer labels, by wearing clothes that are often as ugly as sin but expensive as gold. And clearly it's also meant to expose their vanity, for the photos are almost entirely plucked from these men's own accounts. These pastors have carefully shopped at the right stores, dressed themselves, taken the photos, edited them just so, and shared them with the world. They don't only want to be seen, but they want to be seen in this way. 
This is from Chally's Daily Podcast, April 16th, 2019. The episode is titled Preachers and Sneakers and Pastors as Lifestyle Brands. And it's right here, I think, that we see the primary reason people are drawn to preachers and sneakers. It forces the realization or perhaps the confirmation of what so many Christian leaders and their ministries are all about. They are not first pastors, but influencers. Their great desire is not to shepherd a local church, but to build a personal brand. And their personal brand is not in the realm of religion, but lifestyle. Their brand is success, and they prove their success through ostentatious displays of prosperity. Most of us just see sneakers, but to a select group, the group these people want to woo and win as their followers, these sneakers signal far more. They stand as both proof and promise. I am successful for I have the sneakers. Follow me and you too can have the sneakers and all the success they symbolize. In this way, this Instagram account is an illuminating, though disheartening, exposure of modern evangelicalism. A few weeks ago, I was talking about those same modern evangelical preachers with Steve Lawson, Dean of the Doctor of Ministry program here at the Master's Seminary. I mentioned the preachers and sneakers phenomenon. Now, I'm quite sure Lawson doesn't own a single pair of sneakers, so he didn't have a lot of context. To educate him, I pulled up YouTube clips of several of these well-known pastors featured on Preachers and Sneakers. You know I'm right. Tell somebody, you know that preacher is right. So it's funny now. And when I read David and Goliath as my text, there's some Bible nerd sitting out there, maybe watching online going like, uh, really? David and Goliath? All the stories in the Bible. You want to pick this one? Oh, boy. I already know this one. David kills Goliath. Goliath goes down every time you read it. I already know about the slingshot in the stone. He had five smooth stones, but he only needed one. The giant came, he had a big, heavy helmet. Jesse called David, said, take this bread down to your brothers. Check on them. And David got down there, and Goliath was shouting, and David heard it. And David said, you don't want no smoke. And David grabbed his slave, and he threw a stone at the giant, and the giant went down. I already know how this story ends. Will you pray with me, Jesus? We thank you for the moments we share as a community. We recognize that without you, this is just a talk. This is just um, history. This is just uh, a lecture. But because of you, it turns into something supernatural that can actually begin to change our thinking and the trajectory of our life. We love you. We need you. We thank you for these moments. Help the Hawks beat the Packers tomorrow night. God, we're four and five. Lord, I need faith. Help my faith. Help our offensive line for the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you know the Rams beat the Seahawks? Was that even on your, was that even on your radar? Do you, don't act like you care now. Don't act like you care now. Twice. Thanks, bro. I appreciate the reminder. Find another church, man. Kidding. Come on. 
Everyone's welcome. Everyone's welcome. Um, do you? Well, I think, I'll say this, I won't project on you. I think socks are underrated. I do. By me personally. I under, I, I, and, and I've had, I had a little self-talk recently. Socks are underrated. Uh, and they've been actually an issue for me of late because I don't, I don't pre-plan to have socks. But when I need them, I need them more than anything in the whole wide world. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, you're like, and, 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 and of course, when you need like dark socks, you always have light socks. And when you need light socks, you always have dark socks. And when you need long socks, you always have ankle socks. And I'm just like, I need, and, and, and I've been having some issues with my socks. The first voice belonged to Stephen Furtick, pastor of Elevation Church. The second was Judah Smith, lead pastor of Church Home in Seattle, Washington and Los Angeles and around the world on the app. Both lead large multi-campus online and in-person congregations. Both are relatively young and hip. Both are inventive, creative and culturally relevant. Wildly popular. I asked Lawson to comment on these men's style. Not just what they're saying, but how they present themselves. Well, these men that we've just listened to are very glib. They are very light. They're very smooth. They're very chatty. They're very conversational. They're very low-key. They're very alluring as you're pulled into kind of the whirlpool of their story. It's very horizontal. It's at times irreverent. It's almost just like we're not talking about holy things. It's like we're talking about God as though he's a secular thing. It lacks the fear of God. It lacks being emphatic. It lacks the imperative mood. It lacks command. It lacks authority. Everything rests on their style of delivery which is very easy to take in. A few days later, I showed John MacArthur the same clips. I wanted to hear his analysis of these men who, according to YouTube, are the cool, popular preachers of today. Here was his sermon feedback. So one of the most dangerous things that any would-be preacher can have is glibness. It is, it is a deadly danger to be naturally an effective communicator because it gives you an excuse to just get up there and rattle off whatever's in your head. Glibness is, is, an, is an amazing threat to a preacher. Did you catch that word, glib? It showed up in Lawson's response. And it was the theme of everything MacArthur was talking about. It's an obscure word. And since I'm neither the gentleman nor scholar that MacArthur and Lawson are, I decided to look up the definition in Webster's Dictionary and have my friend Paul Twiss, who is a gentleman and a scholar, read it. Definition one, showing little forethought or preparation, offhand, marked by ease and informality. 
nonchalant. Definition two, marked by ease and fluency in speaking or writing often to the point of being insincere or deceitful. An archaic definition, smooth or slippery. That archaic definition is fascinating, just like Paul's accent. It perfectly captures the spirit behind Lawson and MacArthur's use of the word glib. These men's style is smooth and slippery. You often can't pin them down. It's hard to figure out what they believe. Now, maybe you think the analysis you just heard is a generational difference, a grumpy old guy thing, that no one other than these two pastors who always wear suits use the word glib or slippery to describe these pastors' preaching style. Well, if you listen to episode one of this podcast, perhaps you remember Frances Fitzgerald. She's a premier historian and the author of Evangelicals, The Struggle to Shape America. Near the end of our conversation, Miss Fitzgerald referenced a 2007 article she wrote for The New Yorker titled, Come One, Come All, Building a Megachurch in New England. Here's what she said about that church and the pastor who led it. The emphasis was on the, on the means rather than on the, on the message. He, in order to grow his church, had changed his theology. Now, literally, he had uh, he'd been a Pentecostal, and he felt that he had to give that up because there were just not enough Pentecostals around. And now he had this new church. And uh, you couldn't have told from his sermon what exactly he was at all, you know. I mean, if you try and pin him down to, to some label. And uh, I think that's why people actually liked it. The people liked this pastor because he changed his theology, because he was slippery. Miss Fitzgerald said in her article that this Connecticut pastor created an informal, relaxed atmosphere and dealt with the problems of everyday life. In other words, this pastor cultivated a style. He wanted his church and himself to be known for their vibe. And that vibe was glib. How did so much of the American church and American preachers get here? Why is it that nowadays in many churches, everything from the stage to the shoes is there to make the audience comfortable? And how does this informal, slippery, glib style shape the sermon? Those answers are coming in Act 2, which begins right now. Act 2. The Giant. Preachers who are glib and slippery, concerned that their shoes project a style that is cool, fashionable, and relatable, rarely reserve enough time to figure out the meaning of the text. I mean, how could you when you spend that much time on your wardrobe? And I don't think that there's a better example of this than 1 Samuel 17. It's the famous story of David and Goliath. And it seems to me to be the most abused passage in the entire Bible. I hate to do this to you, dear listeners, but I need you to hear what these kind of preachers do with this famous text. So I'm going to play a couple sermon clips, one from Stephen Furtick and the other from his mentor, T. 
T.D. Jakes. But David was shaking, shaking in his sandals, holding his sling, trembling, wondering how this ends. Furtick's sermon is titled, I Know How This Story Ends. In it, he argues that David defeated the giant because he was faithful in the little things. So here's what I'm learning is that opportunity presents itself as ordinary. Before David ever got to the real battle, he had to face the ordinary. And if he refuses to do the ordinary, it could have been a whole lot different. Furtick's application is simple. Be faithful in what God has for you today. And when you face that big giant in your life, you'll rise to the occasion. You'll have the power you need to meet the challenge. God said this challenge in front of you is an indication of the power within you. Yeah! Yeah! Okay, congratulations, you endured that. Now there's another David and Goliath sermon I promised. This one is from T.D. Jakes, another regular on Preachers and Sneakers. He's pastor of the Potter's House, a 30,000-member congregation in Dallas, Texas. Everything, as you know, is bigger in Texas. This sermon is appropriately titled, Bigger Than You Think. David does not know who he is yet. He's yet to realize the full strength and power of what he is about to be. David has not been recognized as being a king. He doesn't really understand the magnitude of his position. He thinks he's just an errand boy. He thinks he's just going down there to carry lunch. He has no idea he is going to be in the fight of his life. He would have prepared differently if he would have known he was going into battle, but he came down there to do a little thing. Oh, but it was bigger than you think. Okay, enough is enough. I can hear the Old Testament crying. This is an emergency. I'm calling DRD. That's Dale Ralph Davis. No one is more qualified to talk about the Old Testament. He's written several commentaries from the Old Testament, including one on 1 Samuel. He's pastored several churches over the course of his ministry. He taught Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary. And he's one of our favorite guest lecturers in the Doctor of Ministry program at the Master's Seminary. If you've ever wondered what the Old Testament means, get a DRD commentary and stop wondering. It kind of uh, gets our psychological juices going. But why is that? Well, it's because we think, oh, that speaks, that's, that's where I am, you know, and that sort of thing. And I think the, the David Goliath thing has sort of just made a, a parable of the little guy uh, uh, taking on the big guy and coming off, you know, the, the, the number 16 seed in the baseball tournament coming on and, and winning the whole thing or something like that. And that, that kind of appeals. I, I, I think there's a tendency then to to uh, work at it from more of a maybe a psychological angle rather than rather than looking at the text really. Let's pick up that TD Jake sermon where we left it earlier and hear exactly what Dr. Davis is talking about. 
David didn't know that he was walking into a battle and David didn't even know who Goliath was. Many of you have not yet met your Goliath, but your Goliath is coming. Your Goliath is coming and that's why I got to get you ready for it. You don't even know that your Goliath is coming and he's coming without warning and he's coming without an invitation and he's coming without you having preparation. It is just that everything that you have been through in your past has been getting you ready. The little things have been getting you ready. The small task has been getting you ready. The lion that attacked the cub is getting you ready. The bear that came down after your sheep is getting you ready. They don't come with a sign on their neck that says, I'm getting you ready for Goliath. But these light afflictions, which are but for a moment, are getting you ready for the fight of your life so that when you get in the fight of your life, it will not feel like the fight of your life because all of the fights that preceded it will cause you to deal with this fight with another level of confidence and strength. That's why you got to rejoice when you've been afflicted. Rejoice when you've been up under attack. Rejoice when all hell has broken loose in your life because God's got you in training camp. I want to talk to somebody today that's in the boot camp of greatness. <laughs> oh, you're in the boot camp of greatness because you're bigger than you thinking you don't even know it and God is about to blow your mind. That kind of I'm David and my trials are Goliath interpretation can be found everywhere. It's a favorite text and application from the cool pastors. But is this a valid way to preach David and Goliath? T.D. Jakes is passionate. He's an orator. He's engaged. His fashion sense is expensive. But is he handling the text right? Does he even need the Bible to make the point that he's making? Years ago, I used to call this little Bo Peep preaching because you don't need the Bible. You could use little Bo Peep and it would, it would go something like this. Little Bo Peep lost her sheep. She was little. She felt lonely. All she had was sheep. She lost her sheep. How about you? Do you feel lonely? Do you, do you feel like you've lost the, the very things that you love and cherish? You don't need the Bible for that. You don't need the Bible. You, you need any story. Any story, whether it, you make it up, read it somewhere, whether it's Aesop's fables and the worst thing you can do if you're going to do that is use the Bible. Because basically you've just completely obliterated the divine revelation of God. And in its place, you have substituted your own imagination. Now, for a bit of review. MacArthur says these guys substitute their own personalities for the divine revelation of God. Miss Fitzgerald said these megachurch pastors changed their theology to reach a crowd. And I still haven't explained why audiences eat it up. Why Furtick has his thousands and Jake's his ten thousands. The answer is simple. The audience wants a sermon that is about them. They want to learn about themselves. They think every aspect of church should focus on them. And so do these preachers. It's why audiences are drawn to cool preachers. They want someone who is relevant so they can learn how to be relevant. Self-obsessed audiences 
love to listen to a preacher who is self-obsessed. There's an historical reason why so many American churches are so audience-focused. For more than a century, the American church has had both feet firmly rooted in the prosperity gospel, though few name and claim that title. Really, everywhere there is a megachurch and a local celebrity, you will find a prosperity preacher. Kate Bowler is an associate professor of the history of Christianity at Duke Divinity School. In this clip, she's talking to C-SPAN's Book TV about her 2013 book, Blessed, A History of the American Prosperity Gospel. It says on the back cover, the first book to fully explore the origins, unifying themes, and major figures of a movement that now claims millions of followers in America. The term itself is very controversial. No one wants to be called a prosperity preacher. And that was kind of the burden of writing this book, is how do you lump people in that would naturally resist that kind of label? So if these megachurch celebrity pastors, the cool kind featured on Preachers and Sneakers, don't want to be called prosperity preachers, why does Kate Bowler and so many others insist on identifying them by that term? After interviewing dozens of leaders throughout this movement, Bowler figured out why so many objected to the prosperity label, even as they preached a message of health and wealth. I think what surprised me the most was that it wasn't so much about money. I thought naturally the prosperity gospel, money is one of its most surprising claims. Surely this is a gospel about money. And what I found was that people didn't talk about money nearly as much as I expected them to. The kind of excitement that they had was that every special detail was given God's attention. Not just the kind of God in every empty parking space sort of mentality, but that their budgets, their families, their marriages, their happiness, their promotions, that every little part of their lives were worthy of spiritual attention. Look, I can appreciate Dr. Bowler's academic, cool-handed analysis as an historian. And I think what she says here is helpful. Prosperity preachers use faith and the name of Christ as a ticket to all kinds of good things. Better jobs, marriages, parking spaces... But in the end, it's still all about the money. 2 Peter 2 says that in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, false teachers, and cash. Hand, meat glove. So they will call it a whole life prosperity. And I guess, I mean, in theological terms, we would say something like, um, well, Critics would call it a more overly realized eschatology, meaning that we'll see more of the presence of the kingdom of God here on earth, when traditionally Christians have thought that most of the good stuff happens after we die. An overly realized eschatology. On March 23, 2008, Easter Sunday, John MacArthur explained exactly what that looks like as he critiqued Joel Osteen's runaway bestseller, Your Best life now. Out of curiosity, I want to know what's in the book. And so I uh, found this on page 5. God wants this to be the best time of your life. On another page it says, happy, successful, 
fulfilled individuals have learned how to live their best life now. On another page it says, as you put the principles found in these pages to work today, you will begin living your best life now. And that is absolutely true if you're not a Christian. This is it. You better get the book <laughs> because your next life is going to be infinitely worse than this one. This is your best life now. In fact, it's your only life because in the world to come you will only exist in a perpetual state of dying with no hope, no satisfaction, no meaning, no joy, and no future, and no relief from eternal suffering. That's the worst life possible. And this is your best life if your next life is in hell. So, for Christians, this is our worst life now. It isn't that it's bad, but comparatively, it's the worst when you think about the life to come, which is the best. Your best life as a Christian begins when this life ends. Christians through the centuries have understood this. Certainly the early Christians understood it. The Bible makes it clear. You just can't expect all the promises that God has made to you for heaven to necessarily show up here. Any sensible Christian understands that. Don't expect more than this life can deliver. If you make that mistake, if you put too much stock in the here and now, you'll be drawn to a man-centered theology that says God is not the end. He's the means to an end. That's the message most Americans hear each Sunday, and it's why so many glib, self-absorbed cool pastors are obsessed with style. But there is a better way. The Bible, the actual text, demands a different approach. And in our third act, we'll see what the Bible says a preacher's style should be. And the answer can be found back in 1 Samuel 17. It's been there the whole time, if we're willing to look close enough. Act 3. Stewardship over style. Okay, dear listener, if you're in your car right now where most people listen to podcasts, I want to give you a warning. You may want to pull over for a few minutes and get out your Bible to follow along with Dale Ralph Davis as he gives you a different way, a more excellent way to approach the David and Goliath narrative.
there's a sense in which Goliath dominates the scene, and, and he was used to doing that. And and the writer, it seems to me, both at the beginning and toward the end of the narrative, is is trying to do that. Um, toward the end of the passage, in verses 40 to 50, uh, you have this repeated reference to the Philistine, the Philistine, the Philistine, uh, about 12 times in verses 40 to 50. Uh, another thing would be there's that repeated note about six times. I think it comes up the first in verse 10. It's uh, It depends on the translation to uh, deride or disdain, or some translations have reproach, but it's the same Hebrew root, uh, haraf, het, resh, uh, pay, uh, to uh, disdain or deride, or that sort of thing. And that comes in six times in the passage. If you're on the side of the road, taking notes, make sure you jot down how many times Dr. Davis talks about the writer of 1 Samuel. Too many hip preachers forget that somebody actually wrote this book and that the author had a reason for writing it. God has something to say in this text. Dr. Davis never forgets that. Now back to his analysis. I think another, uh, another literary matter, a kind of a theme, is the inadequacy of Saul. You see that verse 11. Here is this king that was supposed to, according to chapter 8, uh, go out before Israel and fight their battles. That was their forte in choosing, wanting a king. And here, here he's afraid with all the rest of them. And in fact, in verse 25, he offers incentives to other people uh, to to go fight uh, when he should be the one. So there's a certain vindication here, seems to me, uh, of Yahweh's... Um, view of of uh, Israel's asking for a king. I think as you go through the text, you see the theme of providence, too. You get down about, I think it's about verse 12, it says, now David was, and it gives background on David for about four or five verses. And then in verse 17, it tells how Jesse told David to go and take the grain and the bread and the cheese uh, to his brothers and their captains and so on. It seems to me that that, that really touches on the theme of providence why was why was david there well just because jesse said you know uh david you need to take this stuff to your brothers well that, that just kind of out of the blue isn't isn't that the way the lord's providence often works that he places his people in a certain situation and you have no idea at the time that that's significant okay here What Dr. Davis said about God's providence is somewhat similar to what Stephen Furtick and T.D. Jakes pull from the text. Somewhat. They say that David didn't know he was about to do something significant. Dr. Davis says the same thing. But Dr. Davis focuses on the providence of God. Furtick and Jakes zero in on the actions of David. One has man at the center, the other has God, and that's the point of the entire passage. Listen now to how Dr. Davis drives home the point of 1 Samuel 17 in his sermon on that passage. What is the issue? The issue is the honor of God. There's a little word that occurs, or a root word that occurs. If you want it in English, it would be H-A-R-A-P, haraf. 
H-A-R-A-P. But you see it used in verses 10, 25, twice in verse 26, verse 36, and verse 45. Six times in the chapter this matter. What does this verb mean? It means, uh, this word means to mock, to ridicule, to disgrace, to defy. This is the core issue. Goliath is not about our problems, but about God's honor. It's all about God in 1 Samuel 17. Goliath says, come to me, verse 44, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. And David says, I can talk just as tough as you can. And, he, and so in verse 45, he says, you come to me with a sword and spear and javelin, etc. But I, I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, God of the ranks of Israel, whom you have derided. You've not only derided the ranks of Israel, God's people, but you have derided Yahweh, their God, and you're going to pay for that. Now, Goliath did a stupid thing in verse 43. He was so disdained David that it says that he cursed David by his gods. He had not done that. You see, what you really have here is a God contest. Who's the real God? And David says, when I put your corpse and the corpses of the Philistines on the ground today, all the earth will know that there's a God in Israel. It's all about the honor of God. The cool preachers miss the point of the passage. If they would have looked carefully and studied the text diligently, they would have not only seen that 1 Samuel 17 has everything to do with the honor of God, they would have seen that their approach to ministry was under indictment. You can't preach 1 Samuel 17 and make it about yourself. That's exactly what Goliath would do. You see, David didn't care about style. He cared about the glory and honor of God's name and the fact that an enemy of God was bringing reproach to God's name. Expositors can't be concerned about style. They have to be about substance. And if their desire is to honor God like David did, then they will honor the word of God in their preaching. Recently, I visited a friend of mine in Naples, Florida, named Justin Harris. He's the senior pastor of Faith Bible Church, an alumnus of the Master Seminary, and we had a great conversation about preaching. Here's what he said when I asked him about the MacArthur style. First, I mean this with all respect, and I'll explain it. He has no style. He isn't about himself. He's all about that text. And I think that's what makes him so unique. He's, he's actively trying to keep himself out of messages where it seems that other guys are trying to inject themselves into it. Did you hear what Justin just said? He has no style. He's all about that text. That is an important insight. I see the pressure as a man in ministry to want it to be marked by me uh, and not just the message of the text. So, yeah, when I say he has no style, I mean that as a sincere compliment. So MacArthur 
doesn't have a style. Instead, he has a disappearing act. He gets out of the way. He lets the text do all the work. He doesn't think about his style, his brand, his presentation. He thinks about one thing, his role. You see, an expositor isn't a style icon. According to 1 Corinthians 4, he's a steward. According to 1 Timothy 2.17, he's a herald. And if that's how you see your role, you're not worried about your stupid shoes. You'll be passing along what's been entrusted to you. So the minister's a steward. No big thing. Just a servant. And all stewards were servants. He's a, a galley slave. He doesn't deserve any glory. He just deserves discipline if he doesn't do what he's told. We are subordinates. It's a tragic thing, you know, when the minister doesn't do what he's told to do. It's so simple to do. It's tragic. When, like Milton said, the hungry sheep look up and are not fed. That's tragic. So many people exist in churches where the minister does everything but what he's supposed to do. He couldn't possibly dispense the Word of God in the way God intended it because he never studies it. So the identity of the minister, people don't exalt us, don't lift us up, don't honor us, don't rank us over each other. We're nothing but slaves anyway. We're all obeying orders. That's just God's business, not yours, not mine. If you want to be a true expositor, you have to see yourself as nothing but a slave of Christ. You are his ambassador. 1 Corinthians 4, 1-2 says it like this. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. The only concern for stewards is faithfulness. A good steward isn't about himself. He's a representative. And if you think like that, people will come not to hear you. They'll come for the word. They'll come to church to hear from God. In my office at the seminary, I have all seven volumes of Hugh Oliphant Old's magnum opus. It's called The Reading and Preaching of the Scriptures. It's a history of preaching from the first century church to today. In the seventh and last volume, he dedicates a few pages to John MacArthur and his preaching. I took volume seven with me to a conversation with John, and I asked him to read Oliphant's critique of MacArthur's preaching. Why do so many people listen to MacArthur, this product of all the wrong schools? How can he pack out a church on Sunday morning in an age in which church attendance has seriously lagged? Here is a preacher, this is my favorite part of it, who has nothing in the way of winning personality, good looks, or charm. That's a great analysis. I mean, what do you do with that? Here is a preacher who (laughs) offers us nothing in the way of sophisticated homiletical packaging. No one would suggest that he's a master of the art of oratory. What he seems to have is a witness to true authority. He recognizes in Scripture the Word of God, and when he preaches, it is Scripture that one hears. It's not the words of John MacArthur are so in- not that the words of John MacArthur are so interesting, as that the Word of God is of surpassing interest. That is why one listens. I mean, that's really that's insightful. That is why Be- one listens. Yeah, yeah. 
no. So the point is, if I stop doing that, no one will listen. <laughs> People don't need another voice shouting in the wilderness, you know. They need to hear from God. MacArthur is not focused on the latest in approved techniques and style. He's committed to the message that was entrusted to him, the gospel that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's a steward. And that's all you are if you preach. Your job is to explain the Bible clearly and simply. You pass along its meaning. You embrace what Oliphant said, that the word of God is of surpassing interest. And so you make it the substance and style of your ministry. Now that is cool. Thanks for listening to episode four of The Expositor, season one of the MacArthur Center podcast. Come back next time when we talk about catastrophe in the church and the world. What does the expositor say when everything is burning? Find out next time. The Expositor is produced by Corey Williams, who always has the latest in approved techniques and style. He's cool. And the fashionably cool Jeremy Vuolo. Cody Signore is our cool and talented editor who put the episode together. Special thanks to the perennially cool Dale Ralph Davis for his contribution to the episode. Kudos to Cool Breeze Florida pastor Justin Harris and the decidedly uncool C-SPAN for chipping in today. Also, special thanks to Humble Beast. They're obviously cool for their fantastic music. And the editing help of Alex Johnson of TMU, a cool place to go to school. For more information about the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching, go to MacArthurCenter.org. And to learn more about the Master's Seminary, go to tms.edu. ATD. I'm not trying to be cool, but ATD. Out. Thank you.